I've always looked at the funny part of my life. It's the reason why I was kicked out of class in school many times. <laughs> I didn't know that about you. Yes. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> I would make jokes about everything, and uh, <laughs> I was not too restrained. And My <laughs> teachers would try to exercise some influence over my unmanageable humor by sending me down to the principal's office. It didn't work. <laughs> they knew it wouldn't work, but they knew they had to do it. Hello and welcome to Notes from the Yard. You're listening to episode 27 of Stings and Things. Combine countless hours spent observing bees, how they live and work and organize their homes, with hours alone in the bee yard, and you've got a recipe for imaginative thinking. Beekeepers are problem solvers. Beekeeping solutions are creative, and they can range from silly to inspired. My name is Laura Tyler. I'm your producer and host. This is episode 27 of Stings and Things, written by Tom Theobald in 1991, and read by Tom in 2021. When I first began beekeeping, I acquired a bee yard near the intersection of Cherryvale and South Boulder Road, across from the Van Vliet Ranch. Through a number of ownership changes, I had inherited it from Ted Johnson. Ted had begun keeping bees in Boulder County in 1923, and this was one of his original yards, so the history traced back to at least that point and perhaps went back even further. It was probably the oldest bee yard in the county, and among the oldest along the entire Front Range. It was never a very productive bee yard for me. The honey flow was brief and early in the season, but I stayed there nevertheless. Part of it was the sense of history I felt when I was there. The hand-split cedar posts around the yard were weathered deeply from so many years of exposure to the elements. The fence wire had a soft gray-black patina. Part of it was the setting. South Boulder Road was a relatively quiet country road back then, and set on a little prairie knoll, the bee yard commanded a beautiful view. To the north stretched the hayfields in the floodplain of South Boulder Creek. To the south across the road, the stone buildings of the Van Vliet Ranch and more hayfields. Boulder lay hidden beyond the crest of the knoll, and my western backdrop was the Flatirons, looming high and clear in the liquid morning air of spring. And part of it was that it was my only public bee yard. Only 75 feet from the road, I frequently heard the honk of a horn and looked up to see the occupants of a car waving at me as I worked. I'm sure I didn't know most of these people, nor they me, but they seemed to take some small delight in seeing a beekeeper at work 
and the delight was mutual as I shared my work, albeit vicariously, with the passing people. It is with a certain sense of sadness that I pass that place today. It has been ten years since I've had bees there. The old posts and fence remain. I didn't have the heart to tear them out. I looked at them as a shred of early county history, but I'm probably the only one who does. I can still remember the song of meadowlarks floating through the morning air and see the wild iris that bloomed at the gate each spring, but much has changed. The road is a four-lane freeway now, a conduit for thousands of commuters, and there is a stoplight at the corner. While there is still open space, the air is foul with fumes, and the country feel is gone. I remember this yard for another reason. It was here that I hatched one of my many ideas that beekeepers often do during long days alone. After hours of stooping, bending, lifting, and waving, I was thinking of ways to make the work less tiring. If only I had some convenient way to sit while I examined the colonies, without lugging an extra hive body around for a stool. I thought back to an ad I had seen for a golf chair. It was a one-legged affair, like a giant golf tee, and it strapped to your waist. As you golfed, or worked, the leg stuck out behind, out of the way, but always at the ready should you choose to sit. That would serve perfectly for the work I do, I thought. Problem solved. It wasn't long before another car rolled by and beeped, and as it did, I thought a little more about this brainstorm. How might this arrangement look to my public? Here's this beekeeper, a strange character in most of their books anyway, out working among his bees with an odd stinger-like appendage sticking from his backside. It was easy enough to imagine what they might think. The king bee, perhaps? A beekeeper who has spent too many hours in the hot sun and fallen too deeply into his craft? Or just another bolder eccentric? Needless to say, I never bought that golf chair. People think a number of things when the subject of bees comes up. Some think of the pollination they provide others of the honey, but nearly all think of their ability to sting, and no doubt many imagine their stingers to be about the size of my golf chair. The sting has served bees well through 30 million years of evolution. It is their only protection to threats of many kinds, and yet they use it very sparingly. Only when the hive or they themselves are threatened do they resort to this final terminal defense? A bee dies after stinging. Were this not the case, if they simply attacked any moving thing that crossed their path during the course of the day, they would long ago have disappeared from the community of living things. 
Add to this the careful selection by beekeepers for a gentle bee over the past 120 years, and we have today an insect hardly worthy of this negative side of its reputation. By far the bulk of stings which non-beekeepers receive don't come from honeybees at all, but rather from the large family of wasps, 1,500 varieties in all. There are a number of reasons for this. Wasps are widely distributed and nest in smaller colonies. Thus, there is more potential for encounters by people around nest sites. Many find that open buildings and the eaves of houses are attractive nesting locations. And finally, since wasps have never been selected for gentleness, they tend to be more protective of their nest sites and the area around them. In defense of the wasps, though, they are beneficial insects. They help to keep the exploding insect population of summer in check, and some varieties are raised commercially to control the alfalfa weevil and replace pesticides. It would be rare to find any of them aggressive in the field. I have a good friend who falls in this category. She had a severe reaction to a sting as a child and believes she may be hypersensitive. She spends a great deal of time outdoors and gets very nervous whenever a bee or wasp flies near. And yet, despite my urgings over a number of years, Pam has yet to see an allergist. Until 10 or 12 years ago, the therapy for stings wasn't too successful. Whole bees were pulverized in a blender, and an extract from this slurry was used in an attempt to desensitize people. Not surprising to me, the results of this method were not very good. And then someone tried the obvious idea of using whole venom. Obvious to me, at least. Maybe there was some complicated medical mystery I'm not aware of. Using this in a manner similar to desensitization for other allergies, the success rate is very high. If you are uncertain about your degree of sensitivity, a good allergist can determine this through a simple blood test or a skin patch test. Based on the results of this test, the allergist should be able to advise if desensitization is warranted. For the rest of you, take heart in the fact that about 85% of the population will develop immunity with successive stings. While the risk of death from stings in the general population is probably far below that of being struck by lightning or getting hit by a train, for that group, which is hypersensitive, statistics are little consolation. If you suspect that you are hypersensitive, don't play Russian roulette. See a competent allergist. Something that you talk about in the beginning of this piece is a connection that you're feeling with a sense of history. The cedar posts 
Yes. I believe and that so I believe that fencing around that bee yard is still there. Really? I haven't been by for several years, but uh, I don't think it's ever been torn out, but I don't think anybody in the county understands its historical significance. Well, tell us about that. What is the historical significance of that piece of land and the fencing? Well, beekeeping goes back all the way to the probably to the 1860s. But uh, if that was Ted Johnson's, one of his early yards, that dates that to at least 1923, and he may very well have inherited that bee yard from earlier beekeepers. So I've always had an interest in history, and that's just one of the expressions of my interest. What is interesting to you about history? Because a lot of people are actually not that interested. I just find uh, what came before fascinating. And I'm always, I'm always looking for the history of places where I am. It's just my nature. I don't know where it came from, but it, it began at an early age. Do you have a memory of the first time you were interested in history and what came before? I was probably eight years old. And we had a lady that lived nearby, Miss Godfrey. Miss Godfrey was single. She told me that the house she lived in was one of the first houses built on the lake. It was built by her father. And... She drove an old Model T with wooden spoke wheels. And occasionally when I would be out at the road waiting for the school bus to come, Miss Godfrey would come out and get into her Model T to go somewhere. And I have the clear recollection of her going around the road to the left. And I can still remember the putt, 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 putt of her Model T. I've always been interested in history, and it probably comes from my mother and my grandmother. They were always interested in the family history and the history of things, so that's probably where it began. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a really interesting topic. I feel like we're in a time right now with uh, just so much change going on. Yes, I'm having more of a sense than at any other time in my life that things are ephemeral. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And maybe uh, that's more appropriate to some of the things that have gone on in the last 30 years. Mm-hmm. The world is changing very fast. Mm-hmm. If there was one thing that you wanted the local beekeeping community to know and to remember about our history, our beekeeping history here in Boulder County. Can you think of what that might be? I would like them to appreciate the role that beekeeping has played, not only in the history of Colorado, but in the history of the country. It's been a, it's more than just an interesting hobby. 
it's always had an important place in agriculture, in the economy, and in the history of the United States, really. Mm-hmm. It's not a native insect, and we intentionally brought the honeybee across the North Atlantic because it filled very definite needs for us. It uh, pollinated many of the old world plants that we were bringing over. Probably one of the major reasons was that it provided beeswax for candles and many other applications, but candles were the lighting technology of the time. And I think the fact that beeswax occupied such an important role in our lives, that's one of the reasons why the bees were brought over. Mm -hmm. There's something that you say in here where you're talking about one of these ideas hatched, one of these many ideas that beekeepers often have during these long days alone. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, there is an inventiveness, um, kind of an ingenuity that seems to come with beekeeping. Well, if you have an imaginative mind, and what you're doing is pretty much well-known, you know what you're doing with the bees, you don't have to concentrate too hard on what you're doing, you have to be observant. But if you have an inventive mind, Hours in the bee yard alone is a fertile environment for all kinds of things, like the chair. <laughs> so there's another piece here where you talk about the beekeeper as a strange character outworking the bees. <laughs> well, I, I, I do think beekeepers are out there on the edge, but it's a really a very basic For anyone who's a naturalist or an outdoor person, it's such a wonderful, rewarding insight into the workings of a very complicated superorganism. So it captures your curiosity very quickly. And yet, I think most people are not captured. (laughs) They're they're (laughs) escapees from beekeeping. Well, what do you mean by out on the edge? Well, how many beekeepers do we have in a population of 330 million people? (laughs) I don't know. You're talking to someone who knows a lot of beekeepers, so it seems like everyone sometimes. (laughs) I think if you added them all up, though, you would find that it was a small fraction of the population. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Notes from the Bee Yard. We publish new episodes on Fridays at noon. Join us next week for episode 28. In the meantime, hop on over to notesfromthebeeyard.buzz to subscribe.